0: came to his hometown and began teaching the people in their synagogue, so that they were astounded and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these deeds of power? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is his mother not called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get this? And they took offense to him. But Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their own country and in their own house. And he did not do many deeds of the power because of their disbelief. Good morning. It's great to be here with you. It's great to see you. If we haven't met, my name's Hannah, and I get to lead our hospitality team. I get to plan our scattering events that we do once a month. Um, I've been on staff here at NERIT for over five years. And then maybe two or three times a year, I get to give the message. So this is one of those mornings. Glad you're here anyone else find it ironic that we're talking about family, we're talking about hometown the week of Thanksgiving? I think Adam planned it that way and I think he also planned to be gone too, (laughs) just kidding. So I was reading this section, I read these five verses. That's all we get this morning, five verses. I read these a lot in preparation for this morning, and I think I now have more questions than answers. So a lot of this morning is gonna be a lot of my thoughts and a lot of my questions about what is even happening in this weird section of Matthew. The first question that I started to think about was family. What about family? In my life, there have been several instances where I've kind of had this experience of family outside of maybe the traditional sense of family. So I thought a lot about my college roommate. I lived with Margaret in college, and after college, we lived together for about five years, and I would definitely say we had this sense of a little family unit. In fact, it was kind of a joke, so we got married in the same summer, and we had this joke that for the first five years of our marriages, we'd lived with each other more than we'd lived with our husbands. Um, It was just kind of this joke until this last summer, now we're married longer than five years. It's no longer funny, I get it. So I also thought about kind of my Helena family. Scott, my husband and I don't have like family in the traditional sense to say here in Helena, but we definitely have like a Helena family, people we've done life with the past five years, we've spent holidays with and gone through major life events together. I would say there's definitely a sense of family there. What I also started to think about was this idea of family of origin. And just to be really kind of specific in our language this morning, family of origin is really the family that you grew up in. It's kind of our, I like to think of it as our first impressions of the world. It's where we learn to be who we are for better or for worse. It really kind of shows us, it gives us an intro to worldview and really helps us kind of learn how to interact with people. And I get that bringing up family of origin can bring up a lot of kind of trauma or grief maybe, And really, I think, you know, for better or for worse, it's kind of our first impressions of the world. I like to think about this idea of family culture and the family culture that we were raised in can kind of influence who we are. I love, I don't know about you, but I waste a lot of time reading like random Buzzfeed articles. And my favorite articles are the ones that are titled something like, things that my family did growing up that I thought were normal, but are actually weird. And so I asked my sister this question this week. I said, Steph, what, what did our family do that was, that was kind of weird and we had no idea? And so we started talking about when I, my sister and I were little, my mom would speak to us in really basic Spanish. Now I was born and raised in Glendive, in eastern Montana. So think Billings and drive east to North Dakota. And if you get to North Dakota, you've gone just a little bit too far. But a little bit of context, my mom was raised by uh, my grandfather who was in the Air Force and my mom grew up all over the world and so she spent her middle school years in Spain and my grandma was actually really good at Spanish and my mom was pretty good too and so when we were growing up she would often like count in Spanish or I knew like all the colors and just basic words around the house. So it's really common for her to yell, "Vamonos" at us, if we were really slow. That means, let's go, like, let's get moving. <laughs> she would also say zapatos a lot, which is shoes in Spanish. I must have lost my shoes a lot or something, I don't know. But that one stuck in my head. I was at a friend's house one afternoon, I don't know how old I was, but I was still pretty little, and we were getting ready to go outside, and I said, wait a second, I don't know where my zapatos are. And this friend looked at me like I was insane. And that's when I realized not every family living in Glendale, Montana has like three dozen words of Spanish randomly floating around in their vocabulary. So family culture, we're thinking about our hometown culture as well this morning. And I was was thinking about really how things like family culture and hometown culture, it's hard to see and it's hard to recognize kind of when you're in the midst of it. I thought about this experience I had was really this first time. I I kind of started to think about differentiating from family of origin and family of kind of hometown culture. So born and raised in Eastern Montana, I went to school in Bozeman and I had a friend, a good friend also from Glendive also went to school in Bozeman and we'd carpool that five hour drive um, quite a bit for holidays and breaks. So one break, we were home. My friend and I were hanging out with some friends and some friends of friends, and some people came over to us and said, oh, hey, like, we're chatting. You're in Bozeman. How's Bozeman? And so uh, my friend and I were, I don't remember what we said, but I remember being really excited. Like, we were probably talking about the Cats games that we went to, which, ooh, that came yesterday. Friends, (laughs) oof. So we were probably talking about the games and our classes and the friends we were meeting and making. And this, this people that we were talking to started to look at us, and the only, <laughs> the only way I could describe their facial expression was one of disgust. And my friend and I, we realized something was happening, and we kind of stopped and we looked at each other, and this guy said to us, don't be those people. And We're like, What? What's happening? And he said, don't be those people that leave Glendive and come back and think, you're so enlightened, and you're so much better than us, and you're so much smarter than us. Like, don't become those people. And they walked away. <laughs> and that was kind of my first experience of, kind of thinking about differentiating myself from family of origin and hometown, and we go into this text today, we're looking at these five verses where Jesus shows up in his hometown, people are amazed, people ask questions, people are offended, and he doesn't do much. So let's look at a couple questions that I had from this text. Why does Jesus' hometown take offense? That was like my number one question about this text, and it was really frustrating because Matthew doesn't actually say. So there's some commentaries on this section, and there's a few ideas I wanted to just throw out this morning. One is this idea of authority. Jesus preaches and teaches and heals with a lot of authority, this God-given authority. And it's possible that people just didn't like this. It didn't sit well with them. The second reason that I thought a lot about was maybe he wasn't, they didn't think he was professionally qualified. So in ancient Israel, if your grandfather was a carpenter and your father was a carpenter, you were a carpenter, they say in here, is this not the carpenter's son? Maybe they just didn't think he was professionally qualified to really speak about the things he was teaching on. This third idea that came up in a few commentaries was this idea of familiarity breeds contempt. Maybe they were just so familiar with who Jesus was or who they thought he was, his family. I mean, they say in here, you know, they know his dad, his mom, his brothers, his sisters. Maybe they were just so familiar that they were kind of over this guy. Now, okay, if you know me, you know I like to add a little bit of psychology into some of my messages. So I really got hung up on this phrase and I thought, well, let's just research it. Does familiarity really breed contempt? So jumping out of Matthew for like two minutes, does familiarity really breed contempt? So I found a bunch of actually research uh, kind of studies that they've done on this phrase. And there was an article in Psychology Today that actually broke down these different research studies. And familiarity speaks to this idea of quantity of interaction versus quality of interaction. So if I see the same woman walking down my street, walking her dog every day, we're quite familiar with each other, but we've had zero interaction. So what happens when we interact with one another? So a couple things can happen. Familiarity can actually increase our liking due to what's called an uncertainty reduction. We, as human beings, We like certainty. We like stability. We like patterns and routines. And so if I become more familiar with you, I know what you like to talk about. I know what makes you laugh. I know more about how you're going to respond and react. And that makes me more comfortable. And that anxiety that comes with uncertainty and unknowing is reduced. I think about this when I go to Portland. Um, this came up in my mind as I was researching this. I've been going to Portland a couple of times a year now for four years, and I don't think I slept the first time before I went for like a week, because I was so nervous about the uncertainty. Wh- what is this gonna look like? And now I have a lot less anxiety because I know the airports I'm going to go through. I know where to get my car. I know how to get out of the airport. I know where I like to get coffee. I know where my friends live. I know how to get there. And so my experience of going to Portland, I've started to like a lot more because there's less uncertainty in what's going to happen. So that's one thing. The second thing that can happen is familiarity can actually lead to uh, an increase in disliking. So if we get to know each other, maybe you're bored with me, maybe I say something that's offensive, maybe you have a bad interaction, maybe you go to a place and you have a bad experience, you just don't like it, familiarity can lead to an increase in our dislike. So does familiarity really breed contempt? It can, but it also can breed liking, it just depends on the quality of our interaction. So Thanksgiving gets really political or really tense. You can bring up this really fun fact about familiarity breeding contempt and everyone will be bored to tears. (laughs) So let's get back into Matthew. How does Jesus respond? How does he respond to his hometown kind of taking offense at him? It says in here, Jesus said to them, prophets are not without honor except in their own country and in their own house and he did not do many deeds of power there because of their unbelief. So what Jesus is doing here is he's placing himself in a long line of prophets who too have been rejected and misunderstood by the people that they were trying to serve. Prophets like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, these guys that we read about in kind of our Old Testament And also he takes a little bit further. He's placing himself at the end of the line of these prophets because he is the fulfillment. He is God in flesh, word in person here on earth. He's essentially saying I am the fulfillment of these prophecies and I think this kind of goes back to maybe the authority issue. Maybe they're uncomfortable with how he's speaking with so much authority. So if we look at Isaiah, we have an Isaiah here, Isaiah 53. And he lived about 700 years before Jesus in Jerusalem. He wrote, he was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hid their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. So Matthew is making it really clear that in this interaction and in this moment in his hometown, Jesus' fate is to be rejected. It is to be misunderstood. In this last verse in our little section, I, got, I was really uncomfortable. Jesus does not do many deeds of power due to their unbelief. The message version of this says he didn't do many miracles because of their hostile indifference. And I wondered if it had something to do with that, that fate of being rejected and that fate to be misunderstood. It says he does some, it says he does where does it say, and he did not do many deeds, so he did some deeds of power, but I wonder if doing more would have led to even further rejection or further misunderstanding by people who should have been so close and so familiar with Jesus. I don't know, I'm willing to be wrong, but that's kind of where I ended up this week. So how about Jesus' family? I need a drink of tea. All right, how about Jesus' family? I realized that as I was studying for this, most of the week I spent thinking about this story through the lens of Jesus and his experience and what he might have been thinking, and I was kind of prompted to think about, well, what about Jesus' family? What about the people at Nazareth? What were they thinking? What was going through their minds in this interaction? Commentary is gonna imply that Jesus' family is right here in the synagogue with the other people taking offense at Jesus and what he's saying. And N.T. Wright reminded me in his text, he said, families are often less tolerant of our own members than people on the outside. And that was really hard because I I thought, I actually asked Scott if he thought this was true. (laughs) And he said, hmm, how many times, (laughs) he said, uh, uh, he said, how many times have I told you something that I thought was really interesting, and you went, huh, and someone the next week told me this, and it was the most interesting thing I'd ever heard. That happens to me uh, probably more than I should admit. But if we think about it, I think it's true. We're often less tolerant of our own members than the people on the outside of our family unit. And I don't think Jesus is the exception John 1 says he came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. What if their familiarity with Jesus caused them to miss out? So Nazareth is a town or was a town of about 500 to a thousand people. I grew up in a town of 5,000 people, and I feel like I knew everyone in their business. So I can't imagine 500 to 1,000 people. They would have been really familiar with Jesus. They would have been familiar with his family. It says here, you know, isn't he this carpenter's son? We know his mom. We know his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. We know his sisters, but they didn't name his sisters. (laughs) The best I could figure out with why his sisters weren't named in here was it's a patriarchal culture, so family lineages is traced, lineages traced through males and the men of the family, and so it's possible his sister's names just weren't available to Matthew. That's the best I could tell on that, but they would have known his family. They would have been really familiar with him as a kid. You know, isn't that this, that local kid who lived down the street? Remember him? He was a little off. I don't know what he's talking about now. They would have been really familiar with him and his family. I think, I wonder if they just never expected this prophet to come from their little tiny corner of the world. I wonder if they just never expected him to come from this tiny town of 500 people. And because they weren't expecting it, they weren't looking for him, they missed it. The kingdom passed them right by in this instance. What if our assumptions about God prevent us from seeing him show up in our everyday lives? What if our familiarity with Jesus, what if our assumptions about how God works and how Jesus moves today in the world, what if our assumptions are so kind of locked in that we miss it when God's moving and, and acting in, in ways that we can't even imagine? I love this quote and it says, our familiarity with Jesus can make it impossible For us to recognize him when he comes to us thirsty, a stranger, naked, or a prisoner. I've got a heavy, heavy little section of text this morning, but N.T. Wright did provide some hope that I really latched onto, and he reminded me that after the resurrection, and after kind of Christ died and he rises again, his relatives and family were really active in the early church as leaders, and none more prominent than his younger brother James. If you're familiar kind of with a new Seq- New Testament section of the Bible, James wrote a whole book in there, and then in about 60 AD he was killed in a really graphic and brutal way because of his leadership in the early church. So they do kind of come around eventually, but in this instance we don't we wouldn't know that. So this got me thinking about kind of summing up this section of the text, the importance of family and embracing community. And also, I think we have to mention offense. I didn't know how to do this very well. I'll be honest. I changed this section of my message up until yesterday because I didn't know how to talk about offense, and I didn't know how to... uh, really say anything that would be meaningful in this time. I think it's hard to talk about offense today because we can find something to be offended about pretty much everywhere we turn. So I wanted to just, when I don't know what to talk about, I just share a story and hope that it's helpful and applies to you and you can learn something from it. So my experience with kind of family and hometown and offense, um, I had a really painful interaction with one of my family members several years ago. So it was fall of 2017, and I spoke here for the first time. And I, because it was my first time, I shared a lot about my story and growing up, I grew up in a great local church in my town, and I have nothing bad to say about it. But I really, for me, faith and Christ and kind of my journey with Christ didn't make sense until I left my hometown, until I left that church, and until I kind of moved out on my own. I joke that actually a lot of things started to click for me when I spent a summer in Kenya, in Africa. And so I joke that I had to go all the way to Africa to even start to think about making my faith my own and figuring out what it looks like for me to follow Christ kind of in my own personal journey. So I shared this in a way that I thought was helpful and meaningful, and I sent it to my family because I was really excited, like I didn't throw up on stage or pass out, Like, and I thought I did okay, I thought I said some cool things, and I sent the podcast to my family, and the first response I got was, oh, I hope no one from our hometown hears this. I hope no one from our church hears this, especially our pastor, because they were so offended the fact that I I had to leave for this to kind of start to make sense to me. And so I'm not really sure where that lands with you, but I think sometimes offense means you're doing the right thing too. And I know I've seen that in my story, and and that's kind of all I'm gonna say about that because I feel totally unqualified to talk about offense in any more than what I've seen in my life and my story. So we're gonna talk about, kind of to wrap up, and, and I wanted to talk about this article that I read, and it's called, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. And it's by David Brooks, and I know Adam mentioned his book, Second Mountain, a few weeks ago. So he wrote this article in The Atlantic that came out a year ago. And it's this really interesting article that talks about, the first half talks about f- the structure of the American family from the 1800s to today. And he starts in the 1800s, and at that time, about 75% of Americans were farmers, and so they lived in big corporate families that were structured around the farm. And so you might have family, uh, you know, parents and kids, and maybe an aunt and uncle or in-laws or grandparents that lived with you. And then we kind of moved to the industrial age, and kids started to take jobs away farther and farther from home. And then we kind of zoom ahead. I'm, it's like a 45 minute read, so I can send you the article and you can read it and we can have coffee and I'd love to chat about it. So I'm really summing it up really quickly. And then we move to the 1950s and we've got this idealization of what's called the nuclear family, which is you know, parents and two and a half kids and a dog and a white picket fence and how we idealized that and it worked for a very small number of people in a very certain social class, and there's things we have to talk about race and gender that go into why that worked for a very short period of time. And then we move on and we see the decentralization and fragmentation of families kind of into smaller and smaller units. And we know that Americans are lonelier than ever when we get to today. This is kind of the first half of the article. Then the second half of the article, he introduces this idea of kinship and mutuality of being, and he examines different cultures of kind of different times and places who've thought a bit differently about community and family and extended family. My favorite part of this article was this this saying from a people group out of Micronesia, and they say, my sibling from the same canoe. And I love that phrase because Micronesia is this nation made of a bunch of islands, and I'm sure they spend a lot of time in boats. And so um, if you survive this tribulation and this harrowing experience together with someone in the same canoe, like you are bonded, you are now family. I'm probably gonna use that phrase from now on. I don't know, I kinda liked it. So he ends up talking about this idea of forged families or chosen families and that there are people kind of all over the U.S. he interviews and talks to who are choosing to live in these kind of extended family groups and extended networks. He goes on to say like there's something about the extended family that provided a shock absorbency to the crises that show up in life a death or a chronic illness, when we have kind of all these people around us, it's easier for people to kind of fill in and slide in and take care and and kind of move into different roles. Whereas the smaller and smaller the family unit gets, the less we're able to kind of absorb those shocks and crises that come up in life. And so he talks about these different kind of people who are trying to live in these like mutual communities and forged families. I wanted to just end here on this quote because he sums it up really nicely. It's a little long, so. When we discuss the problems confronting the country, we don't talk about enough about family enough. It feels too judgmental, too uncomfortable, and maybe even too religious. But Americans are hungering to live in extended and forged families in ways that are new and ancient at the same time. This is a significant opportunity, a chance to thicken and broaden family relationships, a chance to allow more adults and children to live and grow under the loving gaze of a dozen pairs of eyes, and to be caught when they fall by a dozen pairs of arms. For decades, we've been eating at smaller and smaller tables with fewer and fewer kin. It's time to find ways to bring back the big tables. So the band, um, y'all can come up and ushers, y'all can get into place for communion, but I just wonder, we're moving into this week of Thanksgiving and we've got the holiday season and Christmas and New Year's and we often think a lot about family and community in this time and sometimes that's really joyful and sometimes it's really painful. But I wanna challenge us as a community, as your family, kind of as our community as a whole, what would it look like to bring back some bigger tables? God, thank you so much just for your son and for the example he sets. And help us to just expand our thoughts and our ideas on how God shows up in our everyday lives. And just as we move into Thanksgiving and the holiday season, and we just encourage you to just help us find ways to make our tables a little bit bigger. We love you so much. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.